Well, we've been making our way through Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 11, first, or the last part in the first part of Genesis 12, but if you want to open to Hebrews 10, uh, we'll start there. But before we get there, we'll do a little recap. Um, we've been going through the Table of Nations, uh, Tower of Babel, Plains of Shinar, where they built those cities and uh, cities Nimron built and uh, the Tower of Babel, mankind in rebellion against the Lord, and we see it even today, and as the world is once again seeking to become one, can't imagine with all the division going on right now, and they're talking about civil war, I don't know if that's true or not or what's going to happen there, the Lord's got that in his hands, but um, it will be after the church is gone that that's going to be the unifying factor where the world will become one. And uh, that's going to throw things into such chaos that uh, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to have that peace that he can bring, and he's going to, it's going to be a false peace. Um, this wasn't part of my study, but, you know, in light of the fact that they're trying to become one, it's not going to happen. And uh, In fact, just uh, there will be no one unless Jesus is the Lord in every heart and mind. Um, but the Tower of Babel, the scattering of mankind, Shem to the east, Ham to the, nor- uh, to the south, Japheth to the north and over to Europe. Uh, but because they would not scatter, God had commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill all the earth. And they said, no, we want to hang out in the plains of Shinar, and we want to bake bricks, and we want to build buildings, and we want to have our farms all close together, and pretty soon cities are popping up. And, but that was not what God intended. But that's the birthplace of uh, global governance and man-centered global religion, Babylon. And um, beginning right here at the Tower of Babel and the Plains of Shinar. Um, So, you know, uh, that guy will come on the scene, that Antichrist, and he's going to raise himself up to be above everything, even above the throne of the one true God, at least in his own mind. He'll want to be worshipped above all other things. Man's pride and thinking that he can build a solution to everything that's going on in the world and they even have to make up problems to solve them in order to bring the world into that place they want to be. And, you know, the old saying, you know, create a crisis so that they can manage the crisis. Never let a good crisis go to waste, you know, because that way they take more control. And, you know, who cares about them? We have a Lord. This world is not our home. But God is building, and we talked about that too. But he's using living stones, me and you. And he is building his house. And he's built that new Jerusalem that's going to come out of the sky. And we looked at that in Revelation. But now we're back into Genesis. And that line, that seed, that those generations, that seed that was promised to Eve, We've been following a few specific descendants and generations through history, from Adam to Seth to Noah, and now down to Terah. Last week we got that far, in chapter 11 down to 26. But as this is going on, there's many other descendants, just like there was before the flood. The world was full, populated. And, um, and when the Lord judged and, uh, and brought the flood and just saved Noah. But through Noah was that line. Through Noah was Shem. And uh, through that line of Shem, we follow now after the flood. Uh, And the same as before, Ham and Japheth and even Shem are having more sons and daughters, and the world is getting populated again. 
then the whole world rebelled against God again and became one against him. And so Scott, God scatters him, separates a line to himself, though, through Seth. The whole world as one. But here the Lord is once again keeping that line. And we read that in, in Genesis last week, that line of Seth, in order to keep that seed, that one that was promised to Eve. And so that um, through that line, that seed would come. That seed that's going to reconcile men back to God that was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve fell and that bond was broken between the Lord and man and uh, he had to cover them up being the first sacrifice. He killed an animal, covered up their nakedness and um, afterwards Cain and Abel had uh, Abel made his sacrifice. It was pleasing to the Lord. Cain rose up, killed him. We studied all that. But all this is the course of civilization as God chose that descendant, that seed uh, that would come. This is the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. I mean, if, if the entire world would have perished in the flood, including Noah, that promise to Eve would not have been fulfilled, would it? Because he promised that he was going to crush the head of that serpent. And uh, so he saved Noah to keep that seed alive uh, going through. Um, this is God's faithfulness. Promised it to Adam and Eve to save Noah, scatter the nations. Once again, civilization about to destroy itself and rebel entirely against God. Well, he confounds their language. Keeps that seed alive through Seth. And keeps that uh, you know, promise alive to bring that Messiah. And here's where we get to Hebrews 10. And we're going to read 1 through 10. Um, he's the Messiah, the subject of everything in the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. So the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices with their, which are offered continually year by year. And this is talking of the law that came later on. And we'll be getting into that after we're out of Genesis into Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. But to bring the context to this passage, um, which they offered continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. They can never make those who approach perfect. For then, uh, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But those sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and the goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, fulfilling prophecy, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for all. What I wanted to read this for is so that you know and you see the passage that says Jesus said of himself that every 
thing in the Old Testament speaks of him. And some have said, if you have a problem interpreting some kind of passage that seems to be out there, put Jesus and put his nature and his character in there and see if that doesn't bring it around to understanding and to light. Um, Quoting the Messianic prophecy, this is in Hebrews 10, is quoting Psalm 40, if you're taking notes. Uh, This again tells us Jesus said of him, the entire word is about him. But what specifically does it say about him? Well, it says he's the sacrifice. He's the offering. He's the one that sanctifies us. He's the one that restores us to God, reconciles us and redeems us back to himself, our creator. And that's the specific fulfillment. And that's the whole Old Testament. That's the, that's the if you want to put the Old Testament in context, it's all about the seed. It's all about the Messiah, right from the garden all the way down. The specific line of Israel through the rest of Genesis, Exodus, the promised land, the law, Joshua, Judges, then the kings, um, then the prophets, all the way up to the uh, last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. And all down the line, what did John the Baptist say? That's him. He's right there. I declare to you, I must decrease. He must increase. John the Baptist. So far we saw Abel made an offering. First the Lord did in the Garden of Eden. We saw Abel made an offering. Noah made an offering. And these point to that need for an offering that he's talking about in chapter 10 in uh, Hebrews. Now in Genesis, the line continues as God speaks now to another man and his wife, whose generations and descendants will be preserved and blessed through whom that seed will come, their descendant through their generations to come. That's Hebrews chapter 11. Now talks about Abel and Enoch and, and Noah. We looked at that in the past weeks um, in the Hall of Faith. That's Hebrews chapter 11. And it says it would be their faith that was pleasing to God and that God blesses for his name's sake and for the promises of that seed. And it's their faith and their faithfulness that's so pleasing to the Lord. Now some may say later on in the Old Testament that Israel you know, rebels Israel's unfaithful. They rebel against God. But you'll always see in that place where he will say, you know, for the sake of the fathers, for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will continue to deal with you. And so this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for the sake of David even, because God established his throne forever, and he'll, when Israel is backslidden, when Israel is in outright rebellion and just forsaking God and following after other gods, you know, he would have put them off and destroyed them, except for the sake of the forefathers, his faithfulness. I am grateful that God is so faithful because just like the Jews, I'm not always so faithful. And I'm grateful that he's always faithful to forgive and to cleanse when I confess my sins and I start to walk in the light again. That's First John chapter 1. So now we can turn to Genesis 11. And where we left off last week, um, we got down to Terah. And Terah had three boys um, and some daughters. But we'll read just to the end of the chapter from 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Then Abraham and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah, who was another sister. But Sarai was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeas to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. I don't know if you guys got that map you could bring up. Um, kind of interesting, um, if you look down the bottom right, that's Kuwait, and then uh, a little bit of Iraq, and then up on the, the mountains on the far right, that's Iran today. But this is, I picked this map because it shows the, the, um, the lush area around the Euphrates. The Tigris and Euphrates kind of run up at an angle up to, the, up to Haran there up in the top. Ur was down closer to uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, I think that is, uh, on the bottom right, and maybe in a little ways from there. So they traveled from Ur. That was their homeland. Now, last week we talked about where they were, they were in uh, the east area, and they moved into the plains of Shinar. And you can see the, that whole greenish, dark green area is that whole plains of Shinar. That's where they built Babel. So now he, he, learnt, he leaves Ur down there. He walks down through this whole, travels up through this whole area of these uh, um, cities, that some that Nimrod had made. If you were to go north of there, up towards where the mountains are a little bit, uh, halfway up the screen, that's kind of that Assyria area. That's where Nineveh would be and all that. And I couldn't really find a map that just showed all those cities. But notice... Um, the other side, over next to the Mediterranean, there's that little green ridge that comes all the way up down from the, the, the Red Sea down there and up into that little, um, I can't think of the name of that sea, but there's that line, and that's actually a fault line. It's actually a major fault line between the, the, the major continental plates through there. It's actually surprising there aren't major earthquakes um, all the time, but, and there will be one one day. Um, when the Lord puts his foot down on Zion. And um, so uh, that is also kind of a lush area. And next week we're going to be talking about uh, Lot and, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And so where you see the Dead Sea there, that was actually a very, very lush area as well, a lot of that. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because from Haran in chapter 12, we're going to kind of read how all the way from up there, Abram will be called out. We might bring the map up later. And he makes his way all the way down through. Sometimes I like maps. Forgive me. If you like them, great. If you don't, you're just wondering what's what, then bear with me. But I like to see where I'm going and see where things are. It's just kind of a thing of mine. But also, if we can bring up that um, other chart, um, these are the, the lives of that seed, that line from Seth, I'm sorry, from Shem, um, down to Terah and to Abram. And you can see their lives are a lot shorter than they were. They overlap and all. But see how Shem is still alive even while Terah is around. And um, so the amount of time after the flood and then the Tower of Babel and running there, and you can see now how it's really not that many years after all of that that these guys were uh, hanging out in the plains of Shinar. They got scattered. And now after they've been scattered, they, uh, uh, Terah takes 
Lot and Abram and Sarai and goes all the way back up to Haran through that area. And so that's kind of what goes on there in the last few verses of chapter 11. But notice a few things. Um, Haran died, so that's why Lot is traveling with Abram. Nahor uh, stayed behind, stayed back in Ur as far as we know. But um, Nahor and Haran uh, are having kids. You know, Haran had, uh, had Lot and uh, doesn't say of any others, but uh, Nahor had um, two daughters and a son. And Abraham, though, and Sarah are barren, it says. She had no child in verse 30. And so Terah takes his son, Abram, and his grandson, Lot, out to Haran. That takes us up to chapter 12. Um, we're following the line at this point. We're kind of getting in this transition uh, post-flood. We're now down to that line. We're talking about a specific man and his wife that the Lord is talking to. He talked to uh, Adam, talked to Enoch, uh, talked to Cain, and talked to Noah. Now, now he's talking to, um, to Abram. But um, if you were to turn, the re- you know, he's, he's got a, a uh, they can't have any kids. It's almost like he's got a, a problem that there's something going on that for some reason this is the one he's talking to, this is the one he's going to make his promise to, but they can't have kids. Um, why would he follow that line? And, you know, why would he promise the seed to come through that line? One of the most important things I think we can learn as believers is to recognize the things in your life that God has done that you could never have done. And that's kind of what's being set up here. So that people know that God gets the glory because there's no way you could have done it in your own strength. And again, we, we just it's the theme. It's the whole message of the gospel. We couldn't save ourselves. And he had to come and save us. Um, this is beyond our own strength and ability so that God gets the glory and that we know, just that we know he's God. And uh, if you want to turn to Isaiah 51, Israel was in some struggles. And um, Isaiah 51 is an awesome. We're just going to do the first two verses, but comfort ye my people. Um, such a, a great passage in Scripture where God brings comfort to his people. They'd been through a lot of judgment and he'd completely dried them up. And, um, but then he comforts them. But he says, Listen to me, you who would follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to that rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. You know, Abraham is coming out of the situation where he could not have kids. And the Lord says, you know, look to where I brought you out of, a guy who couldn't have kids, so that you would know I'm the Lord. If you want to go to, uh, you know, God basically says he cut a chunk off a rock and dug Abraham out of a hole, out of a pit, um, out of the mud, and he blessed him and increased him. Acts, uh, I'm sorry, let's go to Acts 7. If you can get back there. 
Lots of passages tonight, but that's because I love you. I want you to see it for yourselves. Acts 7, 1 through 5. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren, and this is Stephan's address. Uh, he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, and that's that plains of Shinar, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country from your own relatives. Come into the land I'll show you. Then he came out of the land and the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, where we're at right now in Genesis, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants afterwards. God promised descendants even while childless. This becomes a very difficult thing to believe after a while because we're going to see Adam and Eve get, I'm sorry, uh, Abram and Sarah, they start getting up there in years. And way beyond, we'll see the years of bearing. So this is no small thing for, for uh, Abraham to hear this promise and knowing that he doesn't have any kids. And uh, yet he believes, yet he obeys. Uh, God will also say about Abraham that he's a friend, a friend of God, and would not keep anything from him. Jesus also called his disciples friends, me and you, that he would, not, that he would give us everything that the Father had given him. In fact, the only thing he couldn't give us was the date when all these things were going to be happening because the disciples asked him, when is this going to happen? He says, I don't even know. And the Father hadn't given it to him, but everything else he gave to us. This is a great joy and a comfort for us to study Abram and Sarai because it says that they're our, our father and mother in the faith. Uh, they're the examples that he gave for that. If you go uh, looking at back to Genesis 12, um, let's just read the first nine verses. All right, now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree, which is an oak tree, of Moreh. And the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there into the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. God calls Abram out of his country, 
out of his family, out of his father's house. And it's true for us. When you come to the Lord, you leave where you were. You put your life in his hands. You leave behind your sinful life. You no longer walk in rebellion against God. And you turn towards him and you walk with him, not against him. We have the picture of the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Don't look back. Don't look back to Egypt. That's where you were slaves. Uh, Follow the Lord. He called them out to follow them, and he provided for them in the desert. We also came out of slavery, of our sinful life. Don't forget that, because we do get tempted to look back. Man, if only I still had that, you know, Mustang or whatever. You know, you just seem, you want to continue to look back to those things that we had in this world. But we came out of that world. We came out of slavery, our sinful life, the world, our flesh, and we no longer serve the devil. We leave all that behind and shouldn't look back. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a Mustang. Don't get me wrong. But if it's your idol, well, that would be wrong if that's what you worship. But there's also a, there's a leaving, but there's also a, a coming to coming to a loving God whose desire is to bless and show us favor, show us grace. Um, the first time we really see a picture of this is with Adam and Eve. God brought Eve back to Adam. And it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father. They should become one, but therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and become one flesh, separating from one's parents and family, become one with each other. You move out, you get your own place, you get your own job, you get your own life, and you start a family. You move out. God has a reason for separating Abram to a land that he will show him, and we'll see that in the chapters ahead. Um, But for us, we need to know God has separated us from the world to himself. Uh, Look at Matthew, I'm sorry, look at Mark, and just chapter 1, and then also up in chapter 10. Mark 1, and that's uh, 16 through 20. It says, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed them. And when he gone a little further, he, from there he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, and they hired servants and went after him. So at least they took care of their dad. They didn't just leave the poor guy. But they left. That was, they were done with that life. right? Now I'm not saying uh, you quit your job, but let's go to, uh, to 10, chapter 10, verse 28 through 31. You know, maybe you need to, do need to quit your job when you get saved. Depends on what you did for a living. Um, 10.28 All things are possible with God. They were stumbling on the fact that there is a rich man. Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through an eye of the needle. And these guys are kind of stumbling. Well, then how is, who can be saved? I mean, if, if that's what it costs. And Jesus said, well, with Man, it would be impossible. With God, all things are possible. And 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is one who has left, I'm sorry, there is no one 
who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come, though, eternal life. Um, the many who are first um, will be last, and the last will be first. Um, coming to God means leaving this former life. Matthew six twenty four. no one can serve two masters, says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's go to Second Corinthians just to put it in a little bit of balance, and this is not the exact context of this, um, but there's a truth there. Uh, just 11 through 18. He's talking about that if there would be a, an unbeliever in your midst or somebody who is walking in sin who's in your midst, that's the context. Uh, but he gives us a truth here. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same I speak to you as children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with dark? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I dwell in them. Am I in the wrong one? Second Corinthians 6.18. Okay. Um, uh, what arrangement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Almighty. And you know, I have the wrong passage here, but that fits. It's actually a really appropriate passage for what I'm talking about. But what I was looking at was where Paul says, you know, not that you have to, not that you'll ever be away from, from sin because you'd have to leave the world otherwise. And, um, you know, I guess I wrote down the wrong passage, but had the right one anyways. For whatever reason you are here, it should be because he's called you out. He's called you out of the world, into his kingdom, into his flock, to leave behind everything else. Well, what about my family? What about my friends? What about my job? Well, God is a jealous God, and meaning that he desires to be your first love above all else. And why not? I mean, uh, we're lost. We were lost and hell-bound without him. We were slaves to our flesh and the world that we came out of. Why return to that slavery that he saved us from? I'm not saying quit your job unless your job causes you to sin, like we were talking about before. If you're, you know, I mean, I'm not saying you are. I'm not speculating like this, but Jesus hung out with prostitutes and sinners because he knew they needed him. You know, but they quit that. They, they left that. You know, you might think of the worst thing in the world, an abortionist, for example. You know, if you're in that, you come out of that if you get saved. You can't stay in that. But if you have a job, 
where it's not a sin to do your job if you're not being asked to do things that are against God's commandments, then um, stay in your job. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent Jesus to to us. And Jesus came to save sinners like prostitutes and even abortionists and even sinners like you and me. And um, worse than any of these is the guy or the gal that doesn't think they need a Savior. The one that thinks that uh, they're not liars. They don't acknowledge the fact that they're liars or thieves or adulterers or blasphemers or full of bitter hatred. And we know the Lord taught that hatred is murder in your heart. So you just know different if you've got bitter hatred and if you're killing somebody else. He's jealous over you that you belong to him and you continue with him and you no longer continue in your love affairs with the sinful world and brought you out of slavery and, and out of that death. The, po- the whole point here is you belong to him. Abram's being called out by the Lord, called out from his own people, called out from his own family, his own household, you know, we still go to work, we still see our family, we still live among our neighbors, but now we're lights to a lost world, not friends of the world, a world that's at enmity toward God. Um, now we have a testimony of salvation, and we can point them to the Savior. God shows Abraham a land, a land, for now, he's only a sojourner in it, but a land that his uh, descendants will inherit. And this kind of gets us back, if you go back to Genesis, just to look at those three, first three verses again. It really makes a list. Um, as you study through scriptures on your own, you've got your notebook sitting next to you, it's always good to make a list when you see one pop up and find out what the subjects are in that list and, or what is the main subject that list is about. Well, the subject here is God's promise and the things that he promises there are three main ones. Um, this is the covenant here that the Lord is establishing with Abram. It begins here in, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and on. It gets clarified in chapters 13, and then 15 through 17 um, is where Abram becomes Abraham, and we'll get to that. And Sarah, Sarai becomes Sarah. It is an everlasting an unconditional covenant. As you look at it here, are you seeing anything that Abram's you know, liable for on this side of the deal at all? This is all things God's going to do for him. There's nothing in there that says, if you do this, Abram, I'll do that. It's all on the Lord. He's choosing Abraham out of this world for his descendants to bring that seed. And there's a reason he chooses Abraham, and we'll see that, but it's not because of his works. Um... He also gives this everlasting covenant and this unconditional covenant to his son Isaac in Genesis 26 and to his grandson Jacob in Genesis 35, if you're taking notes. These are the three we talked about earlier that are known as the fathers of Israel. But it begins here, and Abraham promises Abraham, uh, and um, God promises Abram, number one, a land. I will show you, he says. And we'll see more of this in the last uh, few verses, 6 through 9. But also in chapter 13, 15, and 17, it's very detailed. It describes the, the borders of this land. The second major thing is he, he will make you a great nation, he said to Abram. I will make you a great nation. 
And in doing so, the first thing is he says, I will bless you. And he will bless that great nation. Uh, second thing is, I will make your name great. Not like Nimrod who made his own name great for himself. Third thing is he says, he, he will make you a blessing, Abram. Not, I'm not only blessing you, but I'm going to make you a blessing for, for those around you. And we're going to see that in the next few uh, chapters as Abram sojourns among the Canaanites his neighbors become his allies, and we'll see him uh, just getting along with his allies. Not only that, but if anybody blesses you, I'll bless him. Even if somebody just blesses you, just for blessing you, I'm going to bless him. On the flip side of that, if somebody's cursing you, well, just for cursing you, I'm going to curse them. Um, and the third thing is, in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. Descendants, all the families, the seed. The most important thing here to know is that it's an unconditional covenant made by an unchanging God. Some things you should know about the one true God, and we're going to plow through a bunch of passages, so get your fingers ready to go. Um, Some things you really need to know about the one true God, the God of the Bible, Hebrews 6. And what we're looking here is the character of the Lord. If you were to make a list from what you learn in these passages, what are some of the things that you find out about the Lord? Um, And boy, take it to heart, like I said earlier. How God deals with Abram and Sarai is how he deals with us and um, how he loves us. 6, 13 through 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, well, he swore by himself saying, sure, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured and obtained the promise, for men indeed swear by the greater, and the oath for confirmation is for them to end uh, at the end of the dispute. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it with an oath immutability. You can't undo it. It can't be challenged of his counsel. Confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, mark that down, we might have strong consolation who having fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever. I'm not going to read any more and give away what's coming next week. But um, from Genesis 22, when God confirms his promise to Abraham, when he offered Isaac, he says, I can't swear by anything greater to you, Abraham, for this. I'm going to swear by myself, by by my own name. Since there's none greater... There is none more faithful. There is none more true. Go back to Malachi, right before Matthew in the last book of the Old Testament. And if you don't want to flip around, I'll just read them. But if you want to keep them in mind, go home and make that list. That's one of them lists you print it up on a computer in fancy font and you put it on your refrigerator because these truths about the Lord are so rich. And it's just an encouraging thing. Because this world changes a lot. 
This world is to and fro. It gets tossed around and the people in it. Malachi 3.6 For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And I, you know, it's in context of the same thing. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord. And all, but again, for the sake of the fathers. James 1, um, all the way back the other direction, verse 17. These guys wanted to accuse the Lord, just like Adam. You made me sin. You gave me that woman. She made me sin. No, James is saying you sin because you're drawn away by your own desires. God doesn't tempt anybody. And in context of that, he's saying instead of that, here's what God is. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down with the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now that shadow of turning, the definition of that basically means it doesn't roll like the clouds roll. It's not shifting, where the clouds kind of roll and one evaporates and all of a sudden it's over here and you can't pin it down. God's not like that. What he said, he's going to do. And we can read it. There is no shadow of turning. There is no shifting or changing with God. Psalm 89, 30 through 34 says, you know, God's faithfulness and his mercy with his people. But if, his, but if uh, his son, sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Notice this. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly destroy or utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. That covenant, a land, a nation, and all the families will be blessed through that descendant, through that seed. He will not break that covenant. And we are on the other side of it 2,000 years ago when he kept that covenant and sent his son to die in our place. Deuteronomy 7, way back there, if you got it in you to keep flipping. It's funny, just to contrast the things of the Lord with the wisdom of the world, which is so foolishness. You know, the, the whole idea of the Big Bang and evolution and all of that is... And they come up with a problem, the first, and you know, you listen to the guys, the apologetics uh, that we have the brothers like Ken Ham and, and a while ago Kent Hovind and all, the solution that they have is just add some more years. You know, well, we've got to solve this problem, you know, because this doesn't seem to fit. Now, how do we do that? Well, let's just throw a bunch more years at it. It must have been 100,000 years before that instead of, you know, just and then millions and then billions and so forth. You know, eventually now, you know, they, they will find a way. Well, the, the opposite is true with the Lord. He never changes. Um, where was I? Psalm eighty-nine, thirty through no Deuteronomy seven, verse nine um, says. Uh, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, well, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenants, or keeps covenant and mercy, just for a little while until you die and your kids mess up. No, 
for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And like it is Psalm 105, 8 through 11. I can just read it for you. It says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, and the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give this land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. You know, we're going to be studying a lot in Romans, and uh, we're going to touch on it here in a little bit. We are the children of Abraham. We are the children of Sarah, because it's by faith. But that's the righteousness. That's the nation. That's the uh, families of the earth being blessed, all the families of the earth, including the Gentiles. But the land, the land he gave to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob for a statute. Well, Jacob became Israel when he wrestled with God. This is a passage you can mark down if people are giving you grief about who it is that sits on that west or that eastern shore of the Mediterranean. That is, in fact, Israel, and that is, in fact, and we've gone, I guess, uh, you know, you can't say it enough, but people challenge it. We are among a very, very small minority in Christendom, or quote-unquote Christendom, that believes that Israel is in the land right now, as God promised, and he will once again deal with them. The vast majority of Christians, or the vast majority of those that say they're Christians, believe that you know, the church replaced all that. And now we have dominion right here, right now. Satan's bound, you know, and we're ruling with a rod of iron, and somehow I don't think he's bound. When you see what's going on in the world today, it seems obvious to me. How long is everlasting? Well, a long time. Is there an end to it? In this chapter, in Psalm 105, starting with verse 12 onward, we find the whole second half of uh, Genesis chapter 12. And we'll get to that next week and onward into the verses ahead. This is a great psalm for what we're, pat- we're studying right now. But again, the most important thing you can remember about Abram is that he believed God. And if you want to turn to Romans chapter 4, We'll just touch on that a little bit. Just the first three verses. What then shall we say about uh, Abraham? Our father has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Who is Abraham? And we're going to study and learn as much as we can about him as well as we go through this. But what did he do? The first thing he does, okay, let's get out of here and let's take everything that, that came to us here and let's start heading out because God spoke to me. God said, get up and out. I'm getting up and out. He believed God and he obeyed God and he just started sojourning down where, where he was supposed to, where God told him to. Galatians 3, 8, 9 for our last verse of the night before we head back to Genesis one last time. It says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And so then those who are of the faith, are, or of faith, plain and simple, are blessed with believing 
Abraham. And that's what I was talking about. Indeed, those that believe, those that have faith, they're children of Abraham and children of Sarai. You know, um, back in Genesis 12, verses 4 through 9, he took his household where he had gathered many people while he lived in Haran. He was increasing. The Lord was blessing him. And um, he was still childless. And um, it says he was old, 75 years old, was it? When he left, took his whole household, broke camp, sojourned down into Canaan. He got to an oak tree, and the Lord appeared to him. Now, in verse 1, it says the Lord said to him. In verse 4, it says that the Lord had spoke to him. But now, the Lord appears to him, shows him the land, confirms again his promise of descendants and their inheritance of the land. How much God loves us to bless us, but you know, he appears to Abraham to show him what he's going to. So Abraham knows, not only do I have this land for my descendants, but I have the one true God. He appeared to me. That's the prize. That's, that's the wealth. You know, we have an eternity with the Lord, but we have the Lord. We'll see him. What's the treasure in heaven? To see his face. To see the, talk to him as much as we want about anything we want. And fellowship with the Lord God Almighty from all eternity. You know, that's the prize. Um, so what's the response? Just like Noah built a, an altar when he came out of the ark and God put his feet on dry land when he hadn't seen any for almost a year. I'm building an altar. I'm worshiping the Lord. I know I'm a sinful man. I'm going to put a, a, the animal on there and know that I'm going to obey and follow after the Lord because look at what he did for me. What's the first thing Abraham or Abram does? Builds an altar. And then he calls on the name of the Lord. He actually built one altar and, and uh, the tree, uh, the tabernacle tree. And then he goes down towards Bethel and Ai and um, towards, not quite there yet, and then he builds another uh, altar there when he when the Lord appeared to him again. He promised a blessing. He made that land visible right in front of Abraham, Abram. And the Lord himself appeared to Abram and he builds an altar there again. You know, he builds another altar and now he begins to call on the name of the Lord. Now he's got a relationship. Now he's talking to the Lord. Now he's praying. Now he's, whether he can see the Lord or not, He's got that faith. He knows he has the one true Lord God Almighty who made everything the Creator for himself. And he can pray. He can call on the Lord's name. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Abel, just like Enoch, just like Noah and Shem. They walked with God. They worshiped. They spoke with God. They sacrificed offerings. And they are in the hall of faith because that's that faith that pleases the Lord. Um, so he continues on at the end of the, uh, those verse 9. He continues on toward the south. I guess if you want to throw that map up there one more time, we're going to start looking at more of this next week. Um, and you can just take a glimpse at verse 10 there. You know, there's going to be a famine in the land. But already now, he's gone down from Haran up there all the way down to approximately just between the, what you see there as the Dead Sea 
between there and the Mediterranean Sea. On the one side of that whole fault line is the ridge, the Golan Heights up towards Syria. Um, Mount Hermon is way up in the north, and Mount Hermon is where the, the snow get, they get snow every year up on Mount Hermon that melts, and that's where they get their water. That's the headwaters of the, the Jordan River up in Tel Dan uh, in that area. And that flows down into uh, Galilee. And from Galilee, it you know, flows down into what's now the Dead Sea. Uh, but at this time, when he's walking along there, there's, a, there's that whole ridge. Golan Heights is on the one side, and then it's down to Jordan and, and so forth. It's, it's mountainous. And it's, I've been there. It's, it, when you see the sun going down in the west, and you're in Jerusalem, and you're looking towards Jordan, it, the whole ridge of mountains lights up you know, just a, a deep, deep, kind of a burnt orange color. And it's amazing how close Jordan is to Jerusalem and uh, to Israel. Uh, well, they're neighboring countries, obviously, but to, to right across that valley, the, the valley of, the, Gal- of uh, the Jordan River. And so this on the other side, then, is Jerusalem, that whole mountain range where you have uh, really coming down from Mount, Mount uh, Hermon all the way down that whole line to the, to the west of the, the Jordan Valley is Jerusalem and Bethlehem and, and the same here, the, the oak trees uh, at Mamre and the oak, oak trees at, um, or the terebinth trees at, um, is it Nahor? I, I don't see it, but you know, that's that whole range. So that's where he's traveled, all the way down, and he's gone all the way down, and the Lord has said, look to the east, look to the north, look to the south, look to the west. This is the land I'm giving you. You know, to wrap everything up, we'll be looking at that next week, but to wrap everything up, people are fickle. People are wishy-washy. People go back and forth. Um, I don't think uh, the Lord would have us trust anybody more than we trust him. Um, even your brothers and sisters here in the Lord are going to let you down. You know, they, we, we all make mistakes. We're not perfect. Sooner or later, we'll let you down. One way or another, maybe something small, maybe something big, I don't know. But God is faithful. God is pure. God is true. God loves us. God's not going to let us down. Put your trust and your faith in him. We all do that together. We have a fellowship of believers rather than a bunch of people depending on each other for our needs. You know, and um, that can't be taken away. That can't be diminished. He's given us an inheritance in eternity. And because we read, he's unchanging. He's steadfast. There's no shadow of turning. There's no shifting around. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. It's a seal to get us there. And he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. You know, look to him. Cast your cares on him. This world is really a mess. And that mess is finally coming on our shores. And it's tragedy, it's sad, it's hard to look at. But here we are sitting in a country that's is falling apart. You know, Lord willing, it doesn't. Lord willing, we're gone. And Lord willing, there's a stay of execution, if you will. Uh, but how many is it? 63 or 73 million unborn lives have been taken since 1973. Um, you know, Billy Graham used to say if God didn't judge uh, San Francisco, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Well, how many 
children were sacrificed on the altars of Molech back when Israel was following after these gods of the nations around them. Well, I don't think it was any 73 million. And uh, here we sit in our country, so far so good, but it's starting to fall apart. So cast your cares on him. I don't think you can prepare. You might be able to prepare a little bit for yourselves and all, but for what might be coming down the line here, um, he cares for us. Cast your cares on him. Take no thought for tomorrow. You know, you don't know what's coming tomorrow. How are we going to add one inch to our stature, he says. You know, he knows what's going to happen. He knows what, and he made us for just such a time as this. Amen? Well, right at 8 o'clock. Lord, thank you for your word again. I pray, Father, that you would just uh, allow it to minister to our hearts and lives. We do want to love you, and, and as one fellowship, one heart, and one mind, to be able to, to be pleasing to you, and to be able to stand shoulder to shoulder, Lord, in truth against false teaching, and against uh, just the, the wiles of the enemy. And we just ask that you'd give us that ability. Put a hedge about us, and Lord, I pray you'd bear fruit in our lives that we would be a testimony, a witness, shine as a light in this world. And um, just keep us from, from our own flesh and the wiles of the enemy and all. And I pray you'd continue to watch over us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.